Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Wednesday, October 7, and Thursday, October 8, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we'll be talking with two people, Betsy Wright-Hawkins, who has been chief of staff for numerous members of Congress, and Erica Hoffman, a Missouri state legislative candidate running on the Democratic ticket against a Republican incumbent. We'll start off this evening with Betsy Wright-Hawkins. For over two decades, Betsy was chief of staff for four members of Congress, giving her deep insight to the inner workings of our federal government. Betsy took on a leading role in helping build bipartisan coalitions to balance the federal budget in 1995 and 1996, and to apply civil rights, fair labor standards, and workplace safety laws to Congress, and to establish the 9-11 Commission and implement its recommendations. She was known for her ability to instill a customer service culture while maximizing the use of resources at her disposal and the talents of her team. Betsy is an advisor to Unite America, a movement of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents working to bridge the growing partisan divide and foster a more representative and functional government. Also, she now leverages all her insight and experience to promote principled leadership and effective governance. She is currently the managing partner at Article One Advisors, an organization dedicated to strengthening our confidence in government by offering expert insight into the functioning of Congress and the legislative branch, how the institution works or doesn't work, and why. We'll focus our time on that last thought, how the institution doesn't work. We'll try to get to some of the root causes of the problems within our political system and and discuss some new and enlightening ideas on how we can go about fixing it. The Alliance Party After Dark would like to emphasize that the views Betsy Wright-Hawkins expresses are hers based on her experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which she may be affiliated. Ms. Betsy Wright-Hawkins, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me, Dan, and thanks for the work you do. Oh, thank you. And uh, so let's get right into it. Um, Polarization. Uh, Webster describes it as a division into two sharply distinct opposites. In politics, it's part of an overall scheme of divide and conquer. And as outlined in Machiavelli's uh, version of Art of War, An opponent should endeavor with every art to divide the forces of the enemy by making them suspicious of each other, and once divided, they are weaker and thus easier to conquer. That's my own paraphrasing, by the way. The bottom line is that uh, polarization is dangerous stuff because it's dividing our country. It's driving it apart. And I'm not sure it's being done for the purpose of actually conquering the country, but I have to admit, it really starts to feel that way sometimes. So... So, Betsy, having worked in the halls of Congress for many years, can you give us some insight as to how this polarization works and what's driving it and what us ordinary citizens can do to mitigate its effects? Sure. So, I mean, the first the first point I would make is that I think it's um, I, I think that it's a systemic problem. I don't think there's just one cause. I think there are many causes that contribute to it. Um, and uh, actually, some of the work that I did when I was at Democracy Fund uh, was to really begin to try to understand how hyperpartisanship and polarization really does pull apart uh, the institution of Congress. And 
it, over about a year, we actually put together a systems map that identified some key some key dynamics that accelerated the hyperpartisanship and and um, really where we could where we could try to invest in ways to reduce it. Um, so one would be that I think on both sides of the aisle, um, really going back into the 1980s, there has been a growing focus on winning control of the chambers rather than on governing. I mean, you can go back, you can go back to the 1980s um, and point to ways that the rules of the house were used to ultimately have the outcome of a particular seat in Indiana, the eighth congressional district of Indiana. And the rules were, the rules were some would say misused in order to, in order to dictate the outcome of a very close race. Um, you can look at the 1986 race for control of the Senate. Um, you can, you know, many people fast forward to 1995 when for the first time in 40 years, control of the house chamber changed, um, which really upset the apple cart. Um, and, uh, and that accelerated a focus on, on control of the house chamber um, on the part of Democrats uh, because they lost control for the first time in 40 years. And of course, Republicans having gotten control for 40 years wanted to keep control. Mm -hmm. um, and then just really, there have been a number of other um, accelerators since then. All of that has led to um, an increased focus on sort of nationalized campaigns. Um, and that is in part driven by escalating costs of campaigns. Um, and all of this and, and, and social media, the, the rise of the internet and social media has affected not only how information is shared um, and how people interact with, with each other about politics, but how they interact with their member of Congress, drastically increasing the amount of incoming correspondence at a time when members of Congress sensing and, and really, really reflecting the, the mood of the electorate um, have, have almost have run against the institution. And so you have this phenomenon where the demands on the institution are increasing uh, at a time when members are running against the institution and almost creating a constituency um, to, to, to have it fail, then getting to Congress and voting to reduce their own pay, reduce their, the amount of money that they can spend um, on, on being effective representatives through outreach, through constituent service, through responding to those significantly increased um, amounts of correspondence. And so they, they in essence, it becomes a, almost a doom loop. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, Lee Drutman wrote a book called The Doom Loop, but it really, it becomes, a, it becomes this um, sort of cycle of death, I call yeah. it, um, where members are voting to reduce their own pay um, and really undercutting their own ability to do the job. Um, and, and, and the effect of that is not so much that, that people don't want to, don't want to run for, to, to, to be part of the institution or don't want to work there as staff, but, but they don't stay. Um, the expertise that people gain as, um, as staffers, uh, 
they take outside to um, to the private sector, um, often as either in government relations or or outright lobbying. Um, now they have the ability to to bring that expertise back to the institution. But what they also have to to bring back to members of Congress um, is is um, you know mm-hmm. financial support. Yeah. And it just um, it, it undermines. I mean, pe- these are all good people, but the way the system works and the dynamics of the system um, really, really undermine the ability of the system to of the institution to work as it was designed to work, because the people who people who good people go to the institution, get just enough expertise to be marketable outside the institution. And for very real financial reasons, you know, they want to put their children through school, they need to pay a mortgage. Um, right. Don't stay. Yeah, keep their jobs. Well, you, yeah. uh, there's a couple of points I want to pick up on here, because uh, one thing you mentioned is that, you know, that uh, in, in 1995, the House changed control was under Democratic control for 40 plus years and now suddenly under Republican control. And you made the statement, you said they want to keep control. Um, is it, is it uh, does it seem to you, it certainly seems to me, but it, does it seem to you also that keeping control becomes more important or gaining or keeping control becomes more important than actually good governance? Well, I think that's what has that's what has emerged over time. And I, and the point I was trying to make there was, um, you know, if you don't think you can lose control, you're not focused on keeping it. But once you know you can lose control, that becomes a destabilizer. Mm-hmm. And um, and once you know that you can have control, you know, that changes your focus as well. And so, you know, you had you had members. Of, and I mean, I was. I was there. I worked for one of the members who was one of the authors of the contract with America, which I continue to think was a very important document. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was some good legislation that came out of it, um, including um, giving giving congressional employees more rights than they had previously had, and and making the making the institution um, live under the civil rights. Um, pay inequity and, mm-hmm. and other laws that it had previously previously exempted itself from. But what also happened was that there you had members of Congress who had never been who had been in the institution 30 and 40 years who had never served in the minority who were all of a sudden in the minority and found that their world was very different and not in a good way, right? Mm-hmm. And at the right. same time, you you had members of Congress who had who had been elected on the Republican side who suddenly were chairman and their world was also very different in a very good way. And so it's only natural in some ways that people would want to retain those perks. And when it's within reach on both sides and they're both competing for that power, you know, it's naturally that people, it's natural that people would, would want to retain power. I think, um, Mm -hmm. but, but to your, but to your question, over time, I don't think it happened right away, but over time, what I think the trend became, and I think this was also accelerated by the Citizens United um, campaign finance decision, um, the vast sums of money that it that it that can be raised, and that increasingly it takes to run, um, and some of that is self fulfilling prophecy, I would argue. It, 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 it when 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 you when it when you perceive that it costs that much to run 
you have to raise that much money whether you whether you, whether it really is necessary or not because if you're not raising that amount of money then you're perceived as vulnerable and others will come in and spend large amounts of money against you right um and so um yeah so over time that has that has increasingly become the focus and you can hear i mean this is not this is not wisdom that's only mine i mean you 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 hear you will hear members of congress on both sides of the aisle members on both sides of the aisle will say this you know that they run to um to, to really work on problems and that what they learn as soon as they come to washington is that their number one priority and they're told this on both sides of the aisle is the need to stay in office and to do that they have to raise money and so so that yeah. it becomes becomes a key metric for them yeah. um and it, it it takes it it becomes a real challenge to balance the amount of time that it takes to do the job with the amount of time it takes to to do what you need to do to keep the job and it's just yeah. very difficult for very good people on both sides of the aisle um to manage all mm -hmm. the all the requirements and it's it happened you you hear it um you hear it from members on both sides of the aisle it's not it's not a problem you know for that's special to one side or the other yeah you know you're hitting on a concept that i've i've brought up in several previous podcasts um it's that um and, and this is one of the things that sort of puts a burr under my saddle is um it is the lack of time management, I guess, maybe for, for lack of a better phrase to put it. Uh, but I understand that, you know, most members of Congress uh, spend a lot of time. I've heard estimates as much as 50 percent of their time uh, dialing for dollars, you know, contacting potential donors on the on the phone and basically soliciting for donations. And so th that, those are hours that, um, that, that they, they now no longer have available to read the bills or do their basic research. And um, and so these Congress people need to depend on their staff to do much of the legwork. Now you talked earlier about you know the 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 cuts of you know the Congress is wanting to cut their own pay or whatever. I understand that the uh, that staff pay often ends up on the chopping block, and so you have a situation where Congress people can spend less time doing their 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 research, and and now they have a staff that um, is is you know diminished in terms of headcount and quality and so you know we citizens are stuck we're, we're we're paying our representatives and our senators to legislate and and to intelligently weigh options and pass laws that solve problems uh but from my perspective they're failing uh to manage their time effectively enough to do this or to have enough time so increasingly and again this is more sort of my understanding and maybe you can um can verify this or deny it but um, increasingly, they depend on other sources of information, such as, you know, lobbyists to advise them or to help author bills. And lobbyists aren't necessarily bad, but I fear that this process accelerates the corporatizing of America because many of these lobbyists are sponsored by American corporations. So am I getting this right? And, and, and if so, could well, you? Well, uh... yeah, let me just say, I mean, you're talking to somebody who spent 25 years of her life in the institution and has spent the six years since leaving uh, congressional employment working to support the institution. So I'm somebody who believes in the fundamental goodness of the people who work there and mm -hmm. of the, you know, and so that having been said, and I, I, I would say that it's not so much a failure of time management. I think 
Um, you know, I've, I've never seen any, anyone work harder than the members of Congress for whom I worked and, mm -hmm. and the members of Congress around them and the staff around them. I mean, I, that, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days, not uncommon. Members frequently are working longer than that. Now that having been said, um, they have to spend more time raising money because the costs of running for office are higher. Yeah. And at the same time, it's the, I wouldn't even, I would not say the quality of staff is less. I would say the tenure of staff is shorter. And mm -hmm. so you have good, smart, there's no shortage of good people who want to come to work for Congress, but the amount of time that they can afford to stay until, you know, they're, you know, in many cases married, wanting to buy a house, have children of school age, sure. needing to save for college. I mean, the same things that every other American, you know, most other Americans are, are worrying about, you know, congressional staff worry about too. And um, at some point it becomes just not a smart financial decision to, to stay. And so they take whatever expertise they've accumulated and they go take it to another job that's gonna pay them a little bit better. Um, and that is a loss for the American people. Yeah. Um, there is a cost to the American people of losing them. And, you know, I would argue that um, while I certainly understand how people look at the salary of a how people in Missouri look at the salary of a member of Congress and compare it to their own and see that it might be higher, um, I would also argue that compared to what that member could earn in the private sector. It's very small. And if you have people, and, and either way, if you have people who are leaving the institution because they, and are taking the expertise they've accumulated and are leaving it because they're tired of working 18 hour days and they can make more money elsewhere, that is a loss to the institution. And that is a loss to the American people because yeah. that expertise is no longer being applied um, in the service of our country and the people for whom they previously were working their constituents. So, um, you know, the, the select committee on the modernization of Congress was actually created um, in January of 20, 2019 mm -hmm. to begin to address some of these issues. And, um, and there were a number of members and outside organizations who raised these, these very issues as uh, being as being of concern and adversely affecting um, the health of the institution long term, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just as an example, you know, if your if your staff if your staff if the amount of money that you can spend on paying your staff um, is cut by twenty two percent over five years, which is more or less what it was between two thousand and. 10 and 2000 and 2008 and 2014. Um, what that means is that uh, the, the budget of the legislative branch, while not small, is significantly, significantly, exponentially less than the budget for the executive branch. And, you know, the amount of money that that you spend on the entire legislative branch, I think probably would pay for, you know, one weapons system, right? So yeah. um, not that the defense of our country isn't important, but it's all relative and there have to be judgments made. And I would argue that, that expert staff who, and members of Congress who know how the executive branch works and have expertise in 
the programs um, that are run out of the executive branch are very important because they conduct effective oversight and actually can, in so doing, work to um, save mm-hmm. <laughs> save dollars and and help programs improve better. But they can't do that if they don't have the if they don't have the ability to 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 stay and and accumulate expertise. Um, and if they take the expertise that they do have and just go use it, go use it in the private sector. So I think, I think that dollar for dollar, um, the expertise is much more valuable to the American people staying in the legislative branch and being used um, on effective oversight of, of, the, of the executive branch. Um, yeah. I, I think what we lose is much greater than what, than what we gained by reducing the legislative branch budgets. Yeah, penny wise and pound foolish sort of yeah, approach. Kinda. Right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I agree. And it, it, but how did? I guess I'm trying to figure out in my mind. First of all, how did this happen? And and what's standing in the way of Congress? Um, they control the budget, right? So what's standing in the way of Congress actually proposing more budget for their staff? Well, I would say that members of Congress do, Congress is a representative body Mm -hmm. and it reflects the will of the people for whom, the the will of the people that vote for them, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's their job, right? Is to be representatives. And um, members of Congress are not going to vote to increase their pay or increase their their office budgets. if it's not understood by the people they represent um, that there is more to be gained than lost by doing so. And, um, you know, it's easy to understand how members feel that way. Um, You know, who wants to be the first, you know, prairie dog to stick to pick stick their head up out of the, yeah, out of exactly. the hole, you know. Um, be political suicide, so, yeah. Um, and and so they kind of they kind of just keep trudging forward. And um, look, as I think I as I might have mentioned to you earlier, every day that I went to work in that institution, I was proud to walk in the door. You know, it's mm-hmm. the best job I ever had. It it will be the best job I ever had, and I really don't know very many people who don't feel that way. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's the best, the best group of people, civic minded, there for the right reasons, wanting to serve the public. It just grinds you down over time. Yeah. Um, when, when, uh, when there's not, when, when there's not, um, a reward, you know, I mean, we all most, if we're fortunate to have a job we love, we have, the reason we love it is either that we feel, that we're having an impact. Right. There's some reward, right? It's either that we're having an impact, that um, there's some cool aspect to it, one way or another, or that we're financially compensated, right? I mean, those are most of the. I, I would say those are three of the principal wow. reasons. Yeah. And so, you know, I got to go to work for 25 years with really wonderful people, and for most of those 25 years, this the the institution was working well, and I got to be part of efforts to make it better, like the contract with America, like um, in the terrible aftermath after 9-11, um, mm-hmm. working for to to on the legislation that established the 9-11 commission or that implemented some of its recommendations. I mean, these were things that in my own mind made me feel that it was that there was that I was making a contribution. Um, but I always could have made more yeah. if I was, you know, if I was working. And so when when the system started to break down 
uh, more and the, that that type of, of legislation wasn't passing and my salary wasn't going up right at some point my husband and i had to make a decision about how we were going to pay for college because he's a journalist yeah. so you know neither one of us was getting really wealthy and you know we had to figure out how to pay for college yeah. um and so that was when i left and i just have colleague after colleague after colleague who's had to make that decision and and um, in spite of the fact that we loved walking in the door every day. Yeah, and that. But you've you put your your, your finger on a, a very sad reality, right? Um, I personally have had. Um, I'm an engineer, but in the past, I've worked a lot of different positions, including marketing and sales. And so I travel with salespeople all over the world, and I learned a lot of things about sales. And I think that uh, the reason why I bring that up is because. Um, Congress really has to do, to solve this problem, I believe, they really have to do a better job of selling the idea that um, they need more staff, that this is really a cost-effective approach to good governance. Yeah, um, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's Congress that has to do a better job. I also think there's another piece to this, which is at this, the, the, one of the other accelerants for this um, for the doom loop that I talked about at the beginning is mm -hmm. the demise of local journalism. Yeah. When my husband and I came to Washington, which I will grant you was too long ago, um, there were 85 different news or 85 different news organizations that had, that had um, Washington bureaus, including papers from Sykesville, Missouri, and um, wow, that's a small you know, town too. Dothan, yeah. Alabama, mm -hmm. and I mean, I'm trying to think of all the different papers that my husband that my husband wrote for when he was in the Washington bureau of the Thompson newspaper chain, and there were 110 of them, small local papers who had a guy in Washington who was writing stories about what happened that was relevant to them every week, and as the as the business model for news organizations changed. Uh, those bureaus, in a, as a cost-saving measure, those bureaus were closed. Yeah. And more and more papers began to use the AP copy. Now, AP is great. It provides a really essential service, but they're not. there was no longer someone writing every day or every week about what happened in Washington that was important to Sykesville, yeah. right? And so mm -hmm. now I don't understand why my member, I mean, nobody's explaining to me if I, you know, live in you know, any one of these towns, what my member of Congress does that's important to me. Now, sure, members of Congress can put out press releases and they do, they can be on social media and they work to do that, but it's not the same as opening the paper every day and reading about it alongside the sports scores, alongside what, you know, what the mayor's doing. And so that whole experience changed and, and that's another piece of it. And I think, I yeah. think you're right that members of Congress can, can could make a better case for it. But I also think that if there's not that fundamental understanding, um, I, I think that I think I think that the news business made some bad some I, I mean I think I think the change in the in the business model really had adverse effects on our country. Yeah. And um and I don't think it's just I, I don't think you can lay it at the feet of the members. I think there are other parts I, I think there are other institutions in our country that had a role to play that are no longer playing that role. And that has had a bad accelerant effect as well. Yeah, yeah.
I agree. Well, news news organizations. I mean, one of the popular criticisms of, of them is that they were <clears throat> they were slow to adapt to the internet, and so internet everybody can copy anybody else, and right. people stop reading newspapers because they're tired of getting the ink all over their hands and stuff. So they just pull open a website and they read it. And newspapers, uh, at least from my perspective, I'm, I'm a technical guy. Uh, they were slow to capitalize on it. Now, or they gave content away. Um, yeah, and so yeah. Yeah. And um, and at the same time, news sites that uh, were less even handed grew up and people were more increasingly drawn to content that that confirmed their biases, you know, yeah. whatever biases yeah. they might have. And so now I'm less likely to read the other side's point of view. Right. Right. I mean, all of this contributes. Um yeah, that's true. Because when you have a one newspaper you're reading, you get the news from that one newspaper. And, and now you can get this. I think what you're referring to there is confirmation bias. Right. You'll read the right. news and articles. And if I opened it up yeah. for the sports scores, I still saw those other stories mm -hmm. because because they were there in yeah. a way that I no longer see them if I'm just going online to check the sports scores. And there was an educational aspect of this that and at the same time i think i think you know our schools are asked to do too much already and one of the things that they no longer do is i think in most cases effective civic ed so that i understand what my role and really responsibility is as a citizen of our country and how that how those systems work and how really when it all comes down to it it's up to you and me to make this system work and to ask our members of Congress to behave differently. And until we do that, it, we shouldn't be surprised that they behave in the way that we allow, you know, that we encourage them to behave. I mean, yeah. our, when we, when we go and exercise our right to vote and when we interact or don't interact with our member of Congress, we are sending them a message. And if we were to interact with them differently, or vote differently, or express a different point of view, or work with our work with our friends and neighbors to to ask for different behavior, I, I can tell you this from being inside. <laughs> Members of Congress want to please their constituents. That's what they go to right. do. It is fundamentally right. a customer service function. It's it's they are there they are there to work for a group of people. Mm -hmm. And they do that in a variety of ways. Some of it is what we call casework, which is usually done in the district office. Uh, people have a problem, you know, getting their veterans check or getting their disability check, or they have an audit with the IRS that they think is unfair. They need, you know, they have a, they have a problem with a visa. They need some level of, inter and they've been unable to solve it themselves. They need intervention with a congressional office. You know, mm -hmm. office by office, pound for pound, the work that is done for constituents in for the for the constituents who do go to their member of Congress for help. You know, I think you could look office by office and, and just really hear some wonderful stories about lives that were saved and changed by the work of the public servants that work in these the staff that work in the congressional offices. Um, but, you know, if I don't know to call my member of Congress because I haven't, you know, I just haven't learned about what they can do for me and what their role is, then I, then I don't ever have that opportunity to have that problem solved, right? Yeah. And so it's still, if, if we don't, if we as citizens either don't know to engage, don't, don't want to engage for whatever reason, you know, we're sending them a message too. Yeah. And the message that we're sending them is that it's okay.
I, we send them that message with our behavior. And I, so I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not applying, uh, assigning blame. I'm, I'm, I'm saying as an observation, if you're a member of Congress and you have a group of 20 constituents who asked to meet with you and has a problem, you will get a response. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can guarantee you, you will get a response. Mm -hmm. um, you will get a meeting. And, um, and it's incumbent, I think, on those of us who want to see something different happen to, to ask for something different to happen. Well, you, you hit upon something else, and we've, we've covered this in some of the previous podcasts as well. Um, you talked about uh, representatives that are, um, th th they, want, they want to work for the people. They want to, you know, they're, they're into customer service. But and they want to get stuff done. I right, mean, they, you know, they, they're, they're generally really goal-oriented, you know, energetic people who want to do, you know, who want to accomplish things. And that's why they work, I mean, running a congressional campaign is really hard and, you know, you don't go through it and you don't put your family through it right. if you don't have some big things you want to do. Um, and, and so, you know, my point is they're, 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 they're generally pretty driven, you know, energetic people who want to, who, who want to get things done and um, who, who want to do a good job yeah. for the people they represent. But here's here's the point I was getting at though was um, the uh, when you have highly gerrymandered districts, for example, eighty percent of the districts out there are considered to be non-competitive. Mm -hmm. um, that the politicians then know that because we have this plurality voting system, we don't do ranked choice voting for the most part. I think the state of Maine is now doing RCV, but. Right. Um, they, the politicians then really only have to play to their base, right? Because their base, uh, the 20% of the people out there that vote in primaries, I mean, 80% of people don't vote in primaries, but the 20% that do vote in the primaries, they're, that's actually the real election in 80% of the districts out there because they're non-competitive. So mm -hmm. if you're from, say, a Republican district, as I live in right now, um, you if if you win the primary you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to win the general because of gerrymandering so i think you know it, it i guess I'm, I'm sort of dovetailing into your work with unite america um i know that you mentioned lee drutman earlier i believe he's an advisor on unite america as well and he was actually on a, on, on one of our previous podcasts um but could you describe just very briefly what your work with unite america uh is and what, what sort of you know, popular yeah, fixes I mean, are advocating United for. America has a number of has a number of priorities and reforms that they advocate, um, and I would say that um, the the goal is to address a number of the issues that you that you raised, and um, I mean, take for example the way that congressional districts are drawn, which mm -hmm. is done by state legislators, right? No. Now, state legislators have a lot of control, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that is a fair amount of power that they have, and so it is going to be very difficult to give, get them to give that control and power up to say a state commission. But look at, for example, how the makeup of the congressional districts of, as one example, Iowa changed when its four districts went from um, being drawn by the state house to being drawn by an independent commission. And basically it was drawn into four quadrants. And you went from having 
some very safe congressional districts to one safe red, one safe blue and two purple and a Senate seat that flipped six years ago. Mm -hmm. And I would say that part of the reason for that was that people who had previously been in a, blue, a safe blue district or a safe red districts in those two in those two swing districts now those districts were competitive and they were and the people who lived in those districts were hearing messages from both sides mm -hmm. and considering messages from both sides and and having a choice and and hearing hearing you know those messages and that actually i think was one of the was one of the contributors to the senate seat flipping because People were people who were voting in congressional districts, obviously also voting in a Senate seat, and and those congressional districts were competitive, and so they were hearing arguments from the right and the left. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that um, I think that gerrymandering plays a role of an important, um, not positive role in hyperpartisanship and the polarization that you discussed. Um, ranked choice voting is one solution. That others have raised, um, you know, some say it's some say it's complicated, but others point to very real examples where it has had an ameliorating effect. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think I, I, I don't necessarily think we need to pick just one. You know, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think let's let's continue to do the research and 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 advocate for a number of different reforms and see which work. Um, and and by work, I mean which ones are most, are, which which help more people feel that they have a voice and a role in the process, and that that voice is heard. Yeah. Um, because that's an important contributor to people, to the average citizen being involved is to feeling that they have an impact, right? And they make a difference. Um, you know, we were talking. I was talking about what members of Congress you know, what, what it takes for somebody to run and why they want to do the job. Citizens too need to feel that their voice has a role and an impact. And these are reforms that maybe can help them feel that a little bit more and that are incentives to, to them feeling that their involvement is going to be worthwhile. Yeah. I would argue you need to be involved anyway, but, yeah. um, but, but it's clearly not enough people are, um, you know, I don't think in the, what I believe is the greatest democracy in the world that, you know, voter turnout around 50% is enough. I don't think that's enough. And so clearly there are reasons that people don't engage. And I think anything we can do to remove those reasons is to the benefit of our country. Um, and and so these reforms, uh, these reforms are, are one way to attempt to do that. Um, and I don't, I don't think that, you know, we need to, I, I don't think that, that just, you know, we should, we should stop at just one, right? Like right. these are, United America has three that it's working on. There are other organizations that I'm affiliated that prioritize other reforms. Um, I think as long as, I mean, here's the thing. All four of the members of Congress for whom I worked were Republicans that represented districts that were majority Democrat. So I spent my 25 years in some of those swing districts that, as you point out, are fewer and fewer. What that meant was that and any given day, 50% of the electorate might disagree with our vote. And so what was important was that people trusted the process, um, trusted the member to do, to, to, to go through a rigorous thought process and, and would hear their point of view even, and that their voice was heard even if in the end the member didn't vote the, the way they wanted. You know, what we found year after year was that if we were able to do the hard work of communicating with people, and that meant a lot of listening, um, that um, that 
that people would feel okay about the process and would feel their voice had been heard, even if they didn't agree with every vote. Um, and that that was what was um, that that was what was needed in those districts, and that was the hard work that those members that I was privileged to work for did. And but again, I see that happening. I you know I see a lot of other members, a lot of other members do that too. Mm -hmm. um, so good. Well, we're, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time here. I think I've actually overstayed my welcome with you for a while here, but this has just been such a very interesting conversation. Um, before we go, though, I'd like to go to, like, very quickly, a call to action. Uh, I know that you're um, uh, involved. You, you're you're the um, uh, involved with Article One Advisors. So could you that's, just yeah, give us... Yeah, that's my little consulting firm. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, so. What can people do, in your opinion, uh, w with uh, either through Article One Advisors or Unite America or something like that? What can our listeners do? The most, the most important thing is to vote and vote every year. Perfect. You know that is it, it's it's a right and it's a responsibility and it's a privilege that not everybody in this world has, and um, it's the most important thing you can do to vote and to make sure your friends and family vote. Um, and then, and, and relatedly to, to educate yourself about the issues so that you know where the candidates stand and that you cast an informed vote. And then beyond that, I would say um, this country needs everyone to be involved in its future. And, um, you know, if you're not happy with the representation, um, with the way the system works, um, you know, my question would be, um, I have this conversation with my kids all the time. Well, what are you doing about it? Yeah. 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 What are you doing because about it? Because exactly. I don't happen to believe that I have the right to be disaffected if I'm not in the arena. Yeah. And um, people are busy. People work hard. You know, they have families that they have to take care of. Lord knows I get it. Mm -hmm. But I also know that the system will be better and work better if you're involved. Perfect. I love that ending there. And uh, your your consulting is Article One Advisors. That's Article One as in the number one, Article One Advisors.com. And yes. uh, Unite America is. If people really want to be bored out of their minds, they can go to that website. And I, <laughs> I have my whole systems map in there that we did when I was at Democracy Fund. It's not mine, oh, it's uh -huh. Democracy Funds, but, but um, it talks a lot about some of these dynamics. Perfect. Yeah, I, I didn't mention that you were also involved in democracy funds and you were also uh, managing director and deputy director of Amnesty International for a while as well. I worked for Amnesty International for a while. Yep, yeah, I did. Yeah. And on international violence against women and um, and human rights issues. So wonderful. Had the opportunity to understand all too well. Um, however challenged our system is, it's still the best in the world and it needs everybody to be involved to keep it working well. Yeah, everybody gets involved. That's that's the well, key thanks thing. Thanks for the work that you do. Oh, yes. Well, we just try to bring everybody's uh, unfiltered truth to the public so everybody can listen and make their own decisions. Yep. The more people participate, the stronger our country's going to be. Wonderful. We've been talking with Betsy Wright Hawkins, a former chief of staff for several members of Congress for over two decades, an advisor to Unite America Institute and managing partner at Article One Advisors. Betsy, thank you so much for stopping by this evening. Thanks for your wonderful advice. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you. And, and stay tuned, everybody. After a short break, we'll talk with Erica Hoffman, who is running for a state legislative position within the Democratic Party.
And now here's a few words from Dennis Merritt-Jones, best-selling author, speaker, and life mentor. You can find more information about Dennis at his website at dennismerrittjones.com. Also, we've posted a link to his website in the show description. Hi, my friends. Dennis Merritt-Jones here. I really appreciate you taking some time to let me share some thoughts and ideas with you because I think they're very pertinent to what's going on in our lives today and in this country. I'd like to begin by sharing a brief quote with you from one of my books, a book by the title of The Art of Uncertainty, How to Live in the Mystery of Life and Love It. Paradoxically, every time you have a choice to make and you don't make it, by default, you're making a choice not to make a choice, which is, of course, a choice. You have no choice in the matter. So my question for you to kind of contemplate with me is this. Have you voted yet? I voted yesterday, and I have to tell you, it felt quite good to get that item off of my plate because I had already arrived at a clear and decisive choice in candidates and needed no further input from the 6 o'clock news or the plethora of social pundits more than willing to share their views with me. If the pending election has done anything, it's helped motivate many people to make a choice to exercise their voice by turning in their ballot early. You know what? That's a good thing. And no, this message I'm sharing with you is not about politics or political party favorites. It's about a much larger idea. It's about our lives in general. It's about fully owning the power of making conscious, intentional choices, and then taking the actions necessary to bring that choice to fruition. You know, it's amazing how many of us are less than fully proactive with the choices we make. That is, until we have a pony in the race and something to lose. The only problem with that sort of motivation is the choices we make are too often driven by a frenzied, less-than-well-reasoned mind. You know, as odd as it seems, regardless if we like it or not, our life functions by choice. The only choice we have is whether we shall be a conscious participant or stand on the sidelines watching our own lives parade by before our very eyes, day by day, being sucked into a vortex of powerlessness. You know, as long as we live in a human skin, we can't not make choices. There's no such state of being. So unless we're present and accounted for, it's quite easy to live in a default state of mind where choosing not to make mindful, well-informed, intentional choices becomes a norm. And then this is when our mindless habit energy chops down on the bit and runs away with us. When we can make conscious choices, the clarity and intent of those choices will determine the direction in which that horse takes us, the direction of our lives. Most people live with their choice meter set on the default mode, which I refer to as autopilot. And and let's face it, folks, 
It's a lot easier to let other people make our minds up for us. And that's part of the problem that's going on today in our culture. And yet the results when we do that are not often happy. They're not fulfilling. You know, if, if we want to live an extraordinary, and by that I mean extraordinary life, based on healthy, life-affirming choices, we can't fly through life on autopilot. It's about accountability. It's about maturity. And frankly, it's about having a healthy sense of self. Long after the election comes and goes, we'll still have to deal with the reality that it is quite literally impossible to live a choiceless life. And if that's the case, and it is, why not make those choices mindfully? So whether it's who we vote for, or what we put in our mouths, or the words that come out of our mouths, or the manner in which we drive our cars on the freeway, or what time we go to bed, etc., 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 a choice precedes our every action. So I invite you to take a deep breath with me. And say, I say this to you. May your choices today reflect the highest and best part of yourself tomorrow and every day thereafter. That's the power of conscious choice. Know you're blessed. Have a beautiful day. Peace over and out. Welcome back. We're delighted to talk now with Erica Hoffman. Erica is currently running within the Democratic Party for the Missouri State House, District 96, which covers an area to the southwest of St. Louis, including Sunset Hills and Fenton. She is a former teacher, and she currently is a a community volunteer and fundraiser, helping to build organizations that advocate for our children and communities. For years, she has worked side-by-side with other people in her district, of all political parties, to make a better community. Erica understands that working together isn't only possible, it's the best way for us all to find solutions and make all of our lives better. As a candidate, she has gathered endorsements from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the UAW, the St. Louis Chapter of the National Women's Political Caucus, the Communication Workers of America, the Sierra Club, and several other organizations. She served as the state legislative chair for the Sierra Club and worked to preserve local control over solid waste policies. On top of it all, she is a wife and mother to two young children. Ms. Erica Hoffman, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So let's get started with something that uh, is your expertise regarding education. Um... Your campaign website mentions that funds are currently being diverted from the Lindbergh, Melville, and Rockwoods school districts. Now, these are school districts in the southwestern part of St. Louis County. Um, So, first of all, can you briefly explain what's going on and and how are these funds being diverted and, and for what purpose and on whose authority? Well, I think education funding is a complex issue, and it's very difficult for people to wrap their heads around how the process works because it's not just one one basket that the funding comes from. It comes from different areas. We have local, state, federal funding. And um, as the education costs increase and how much it takes to raise a child through the education system and educate them, um, we are not seeing a 
an equal amount of funding coming into the schools. In addition, there's other funding like transportation, for example, and the amount that's being given to schools to transport students, it fluctuates year to year, and it's nowhere near the amount that's needed to actually transport children. So that is something that is an easy easy funding issue to, to, to pinpoint, but um, mm -hmm. it's just an example of the many areas that need funding. Another area is like technology funding. So um, it's become very clear this year, we need technology in our schools because that's how a lot of virtual learning is taking place right now. And um, we don't have enough funding for that. And we're trying to come up with creative ways to, to, to fund um, mm -hmm. things like that in the school when I was working as a fundraiser. Okay. Especially in the PTO, we were funding we were funding technology using fundraisers. Yeah, I was reading about that. You guys, uh, the, the PTO actually raised quite a bit of uh, money for the local school districts. That's very good. Um, so this is an issue that that exists uh, not only in St. Louis; it exists in every community I've ever lived in. I've spent quite a bit of time in California. Um, it has to do with local property taxes, and and uh, you know you mentioned that there's local, state, and federal funding that goes into schools. The local part of it is usually assessed on the property uh, taxes, uh, and those property taxes are assessed on the um, the perceived value or the real value of of the uh, of the homes, right? And so, as let's say you have a situation which doesn't necessarily exist. Uh, in your territory, but you have a situation in many places in Missouri where the schools are underfunded. Uh, they're not getting enough uh, finances from local property taxes. Uh, and as the schools uh, start to diminish because they have less money, uh, that brings the property values down. And the lower the property values, the uh, the lower the funding for the school. And you have this sort of I guess what engineers would call a, a positive feedback system where, you know, detrimental effects get amplified over time. How do you, have you ever put any thought into how that, um, how that, how the dynamics of that works or doesn't work for the local communities? Um, I've given it a lot of thought. And, you know, one thing that I hear often is I don't want my taxes raised, <laughs> mm -hmm. especially property taxes. And now we have made the issue even more complicated because um, you, a lot of times you hear pushback from people that are like, I don't want to put more money into my local school. I don't mm -hmm. want to pay more taxes for that. But then if um, something comes through, like say Prop P, which I voted for, but um, they'll they'll maybe vote for that because that would provide um, additional funding for law enforcement. So that's also a worthy cause as well. But what it does is it increases your taxes. Then you had Prop Z and that put money towards the zoo funding. And um, so now you're paying more taxes for that. So our taxes, like our, my pers our personal property taxes have increased a lot over the past wow. several years. And it's because of these other, um, other items that we're funding now and they're all worthy they're all worthy. You know, I'm glad that we have those additional money set aside for them, but at the same time, like our taxes are going through the roof and we have to come up with a solution of how we can fund our schools um, without breaking the bank. Cause a lot of people, I think in this area feel like they're getting priced out of their homes because mm -hmm. of the property tax. If they, if you're on a fixed income or you're low income, it's very hard to make the property tax payment. Yeah. So yeah. I have thought a lot about that and how that's impacting families. 
Well, how about um, this is perhaps a little bit off topic before I move on to the next uh, to the next uh, question here. But um, you mentioned in your website your children go to public schools, and therefore you know you can be assured that your property taxes, the the portion of it, anyways, that goes into funding the local schools, actually applies to your own children. But there uh, there has been a movement uh, of late um, that charter schools can get you know vouchers from the property taxes that allow children to use some of that money to go to essentially what are private schools. Um, have you ever thought about that and, and, and where, you know, where we, where we should lie or where we should, uh, what should we allow it first of all? And secondly, is it fair? Um, I don't think we should allow it. And I know that that's a hard answer for some people to hear, but we fund our public schools for all children. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that when you start putting money into private school, public money into private schools, into charter schools, which we don't have in this area and nobody's asking for them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's another piece of the puzzle I want to talk about here in just a second. But um, when you pay your taxes, that is to benefit the public good and schools take in everyone and they need to be able to fund that. And so you always have the option to put your children in public schools. And public schools have to be accountable too. That's the other thing is um, a lot of times private schools, they're not held to the same testing standards. They could still be a very rigorous school and have high standards themselves, but um, they don't have to do the same kind of reporting. They don't have to take in the same kind of students. I've talked to parents that have students that have like ADHD and the school said, we don't have the resources for you. Why don't you enroll in the public school? Well, the public school has to educate that child the same as anyone else and possibly provide extra services to help them out. And so that's where um, I don't think our public tax dollars should be used to go to fund private schools. Okay, good. Um, The charter school issue, um, I had mentioned a second ago, but um, nobody is asking in this district, like I knocked on thousands of doors when I ran in 2018, nobody asked for charter schools. Not one person, not a person with their kid in private school, not a person with their kid in public school. And the bottom line is, is that there are outside interests that stand to make a lot of money off of our children if we open up charter schools. And that's really what this is all about. They're receiving donations for their campaigns because I was also offered a lot of money to for my campaign if I was willing to support charter schools. Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely not. No. So I'm very adamant. This is one of the main reasons why I ran for office was to keep charters out of this area. My opponent doesn't have children. He doesn't understand the value of public schools and he keeps voting for charter schools and it's very frustrating. Um, and last night during the debate, I heard the vice president say that he wanted to make choice. They call it choice, like choice is good, but it's not good if you have to pay using the money from the public schools. That's not a choice then. Yeah. Um, but he was saying he wanted to make that nationwide and that was very disturbing to hear that comment. Yeah, yeah, that was. Okay, um, moving on here. Um, I was looking at your campaign website. I was, I was studying, you know, all, what are your what your stances are on all the issues and what you've been doing. Um, and the website says that, uh, that local control of solid waste policies was taken away by the CAFOs, that's the Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. And uh, and so I, I just point out, first of all, this is not a St. Louis issue. This is an issue that affects uh, much, of the, uh, much of the Midwest and, and, and the rest of the nation, really, anywhere where these huge factory farms exist. 
And so I did a little bit more research on this, and there was a report that was produced by the CDC's Environmental Health Services Branch. Um, And they said that annually it is estimated that livestock animals in the U.S. produce each year somewhere between 3 and 20 times more waste than people in the United States. Or, and that amounts to about 1.2 to 1.37 billion, with a B, billion tons of waste. Um, so, you know, so sewage treatment plants are required for human waste, but no such treatment facility exists for livestock waste. So, um, you it's were the scary. Yeah, it is scary. And, and you were the state legislative chair for the uh, Sierra Club, and you fought. To, you fought the good fight, in my opinion. You fought to, to maintain local control over these CAFOs. Uh, unfortunately, I, 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 from what I understand, it was, it was, uh, it was still defeated. But um, so, could you briefly describe this issue and its outcome? And, and yeah. as a state legislator, do you, do you have any plans to reverse or perhaps mitigate this issue in some way? Well, I would love to return local control back to the communities. It's interesting that the Republican Party has long been touting how they believe in small government, local control. And then um, when it's something that that they that they care about, then uh, that kind of just flies out the window. But this bill is particularly harmful for residents in rural areas. And I felt like it is a statewide national issue because the food that I eat <laughs> You know, the meat that we eat, let's be real, unless you're going to Whole Foods and picking out some some grass raised meat, then you probably are getting food from one of these cave foes is what mm-hmm. they're known as, more commonly known as. And uh, when when we went around to um, members of the Moledge as a Sierra Club, like I volunteered my time, drove to Jefferson City um, to try to get this bill defeated. Um, we actually spoke with the bill sponsor in the Senate. Um, with the legit, not with him directly, but with the members of his legislative staff. And I just said, you know, how did this bill come about to be getting filed? Because it just seemed ridiculous to me that um, there would be some some community in the district that was asking for reduced regulations on a capo. Because mm-hmm. what I had read about it in the past was that, you know, you'd have a small, you know, a couple on a small acreage or a small tiny farm and a big CAFO sets up next to them. And next thing you know, they've got fumes and sewage and waste and yeah. trucks coming through and completely devalues their property. It fringed on their rights, but then also like they had no recourse. It's hard to take on a big corporation like Smithville, this Chinese owned. You know, mm-hmm. who do you go to to make a complaint about that when the national headquarters is in Greeley, Colorado, for example? Yeah. So, um, you know, I asked them, like, what, how did this bill come about? And they were like, well, you know, there's lobby groups like the pork, the corn, the cattlemen, the Missouri Farm Bureau, you know, they come around and they asked to file a bill. And, you know, eventually we, you know, they just said yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, really? And then, um, you know, I'm like, well, was, was there people asking for this? And it's like, no, I mean, it was purely a lobby bill. And those lobby groups are who donate to those kinds of rural candidates. And so I guess they felt like they owed them a favor. I mean, I don't know how else you can explain what happened with this bill. And then it went right through and it got signed into law by Governor Parson. And it's just um, disappointing to see then that all of those communities, like one of the counties, um, one of the counties, Cooper County, had passed an ordinance prohibiting manure dumping within a hundred foot of an occupied residence. That's really feet. not that That's far. Yeah. Hundred feet. 
But the law now overturned it. So now the state requirement's only 50 feet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're not asking for something. They're not asking for some crazy. I mean, it, I just feel so bad for people that live in this part of the state. And I'm like, who's looking out for somebody like that? There's nobody, really. Yeah. I mean, if you're elected rep that you might have voted for is willing to do that to you, like you have nobody. So. I'm glad I was able to stand up a little bit on the issue. I have a small voice, you know, but I'm willing to say, hey, that was wrong what you guys did. And I, I would love to take steps to overturn that kind of legislation because it's not good for Missouri residents. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good for anybody. I mean, once you, if, if, if you can and if you are successful at overturning this, that, that could be a model for other states as well that are having the same problem. Um, it is a huge problem. Um and it's it a, is. And, and, you know, Miss. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, Missouri puts a lot of value into our streams and um, we have a lot of karst topography where the water permeates through the rocks, you know, and if you have CAFOs that have contamination that gets into our water supply and ruins our streams. I mean, that's going to take away one of the best things about our state. And so I just think we need to be more careful about the size of these feed operations. We need to be careful about how we manage the waste from these animals. And I, I eat meat, so I, I get it. It's a tough, it's tough when you're like thinking you want to have a cleaner environment, but you also eat a chicken sandwich for dinner. So you have to, you know, we're all playing a role in, in this situation, we all need to do better. Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, um, I actually, just as a side note, my wife and I became vegans uh, about three years ago, and that lasted for about a year. So we backed off, and now we're vegetarians. So we we just uh, and we do it mostly for our own health. But it's nice to know yeah. that there is a positive environmental uh, aspect to what we're doing. Uh, personally, it, it it did a lot of good things for my body, but. Uh, but it's just um, kind of a personal. Oh yeah. Thing. So. Um, yeah. Well, my husband's been a vegetarian for about ten years, oh. and that was the other thing that really bothered me about um, this this new um, like veggie patties that they're bringing out on the market. For somebody like him, who doesn't eat meat, it's nice to have that alternative. When you go to Burger King, he can get a meal. Yeah. You know, but. Um, the, there was such a pushback from the Farm Bureau and some of these ag groups. And I thought, well, aren't those made out of plants, you know, that could be farmed? Yeah. It's yeah. just really strange, the um, this push, trying to push all of this beef on us. It's just, and I'm not against cattle, but yeah, it's just strange yeah. that, you know, we're trying to villainize um, a veggie patty. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Amazon rainforests are being torn down to make land for room for the, uh, for cattle grazing, right? So, it is an issue. Yeah. Um, is. So on to other things, too. This is somewhat related. Uh, again, going back to your website, you talked about floodplain development. Uh, this is a huge problem. Now, just as a sort of a, a, a backgrounder for people that are listening that are not from this area, um, I moved into Missouri from California after living out there for almost 30 years. Um, originally from Missouri, now I'm back. But okay. uh, since I've been back, I've been back for about uh, almost six years now. Um, and since that time, I've seen two 100-year floods hit the local Merrimack River. <laughs> and uh, for those who yeah. don't know who the Mer what the Merrimack River is, it drains much of the uh, southern uh, of, of Missouri, uh, south of the Missouri River, and it angles up toward 
the Northeast and dumps into the Mississippi River right around, um, you know, your district, 96, as well as mine. And um, so during this time, we've seen uh, two 100-year floods. We've seen uh, this is a, it's a huge issue. And I can't help thinking that, you know, floodplain development might be partially responsible. Uh, rivers are very much like, um, or land, I should say, is very much like a sponge. It, it absorbs water. And if you start limiting the amount of water that the land can absorb because you're building on a floodplain, that causes the water to channel down. And in our case here in the Merrimack River, it has been a disaster uh, in the last, like I say, the last five or six years, we've seen these huge floods. So, um, and unfortunately, like I said, the 96th district is in the downstream area. So um, are you, how are you going to approach this issue in dealing with uh, representatives of districts in the upstream areas that maybe, may, uh, at least maybe not now, but may contribute to this problem in the future? Yeah. Well, here's the thing about flooding in Missouri is that it's statewide. Um, I have been working, I had worked on legislation um, as the Sierra legislative chair. We, I worked across the aisle with a represent, another rep in the house that's downstream um, in your district in Jefferson County. And then also with the Senate, my Senator, um, and he was willing to file a bill to reduce tips on floodplains. So uh, not completely banning them, but at least tips, you know, um, so it would be, it would make it to where um, you're not going to get a government you're not going to get government help <laughs> to build on a floodplain and then have a flood come in and then you'd be asking for help again. So we'd be we'd be paying two times to help out somebody that's making a poor decision in the first place. But floodplains are low hanging fruit to a developer, I think, um, because it's just it's flat land and it's easy to build on. And a lot of times there's nothing in it because yeah. it's a floodplain. But, right, but right. when you people forget so fast um, that land has flooded and they want to put something there because they just see a big open green space. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, we had the, the TIF floodplain bill. It was interesting. It was a TIF bill that um, was about just TIFs in general. But when the floodplain portion of it got added to the bill, that's kind of what it became there was a big article in the st louis post and it passed through the senate 32 to nothing the 31 to nothing it had great success i mm -hmm. mean everybody was supportive of it uh and then it went to the house and these developers came out of the woodwork and it was just like all over the state people wanted exemption for their little area where they sure. were trying to develop but still developing in floodplain you know i mean it's just it was frustrating and the bill ended up stalling, but I thought it, it made, um, it helped bring awareness to the issue. I'd like to continue to work on that. Um, I helped to get, there was another attempt by the city of Maryland Heights to develop just last December. Um, they wanted to build a huge shopping plaza. This is right next to the Missouri River mm -hmm. in a floodplain. The land had been flooded that year. They wanted to come in and put in a big pump and have the county sure. pay for it. They wanted to put a huge shopping plaza, apartments, and, I, and I'm like, well, Chesterfield Mall sitting empty. You know, we have mm -hmm. places that have, we have strip malls that have nothing in them. We don't need more development, right. uh, especially on a floodplain. Fortunately, that was defeated. And then I turned around in my backyard and Winter Brothers, which was a construction company, got a permit from the city of Sunset Hills to build a Cahokia-style mound <laughs> and uh. put some businesses on there. So it's like, Everywhere you turn, you are fighting development in floodplain areas in Missouri, despite the fact we've had 
huge flooding come through and it has a terrible impact on people who live close to the rivers like maybe their house had never flooded in the past but now they now it is now they're getting flooded and it's very hard to sell your home once it's been flooded yeah yeah we're taking a loss and it's very stressful i mean the emotional toll it takes on you worrying if there's a lot of rain is our home going to flood are we going to be shut off from the rest of the county um are we going to be an island the island of fenton so a lot of stress involved with flooding and i think that what we need to do is take steps to protect ourselves and protect the residents of missouri and say we're not going to develop in floodplains it just seems so simple but obviously there's a lot more involved in that yeah you're you're uh you're fighting some some monstrous um developers out there that um you know they they see the money they see the profit and they think well i can just build on this part of this floodplain and it probably won't make that much difference and that may be true for one guy right <laughs> but then you get more and more people doing it and then it, it starts to accumulate and uh, yeah my wife and i have we've we've driven around we've looked at homes in this area and we've seen several of them that we could just tell they're on a floodplain and and we ask and sure enough they tell us yeah we've had flood come we've had a flood come through here before and and you're right it does diminish yeah. the value of that property then and it's really you really got to feel bad for people that didn't know it was on the floodplain before they built it because it never flooded before but now it's starting to flood so it is an issue. That's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of little tributaries and stuff or drainage ditches, you know, where the water maybe would come up a little bit, but then with those floods, it like came up and up in, into their house and now they're sitting on property they can't sell. Yeah. And uh, we've lost businesses in Fenton from flooding, you know, they're just like they're not going to take the risk if there's nobody that's going to take any steps to protect you and see that it's not going to happen again. It's it's a real issue because St. Louis, like we are located in this area because of the rivers. And that's how, you know, that used to be the highways of the country. And so yeah. we have a lot of people that live around here. Yeah. And just for everybody's education, TIF, uh, when you talk about TIFs, that's the tax increase, or uh, tax increment financing. That's the uh, uh, it's a public financing method that's used as a subsidy for redevelopment and infrastructure. And uh, just a uh, Decided to fill that in for you there. Okay, um, so let's move on to the next thing. Um, I, I look at your website and just sort of like, you know, reading between the lines and everything, I see you mentioned, uh, you, you obviously support uh, collective bargaining, you're a very strong supporter of that. You have a lot of endorsements from unions. Um, you, support the, you support the idea of living wage and you talk a lot about, <clears throat> excuse me, you talk a lot about healthcare. And all of these issues parallel many of the issues in the Green New Deal. And um, if you watched, well, I'm sure you, you did watch the vice presidential debate last night. And um, I, I saw how Mike Pence tried to use the Green New Deal as a cudgel to you know, beat up the Democrats over this. But I think it's kind of a losing battle on his side because it's, it's, it's just going to happen. But for the time being, anyways, it seems to be something that the Republicans used to to, uh, like I say, as a cudgel to beat up the Democrats. Um, so I don't understand it myself. Well, what convincing arguments can you make uh, when your opponent comes up with this criticism about the Green New Deal? You know, I mean, it, it's not it's not just one. It's, it, it's an umbrella of ideas, you know, and it's based mm -hmm. loosely upon the New Deal that FDR came up with uh, to try to get the economy stimulated. And I don't see what's wrong with coming up with new ideas. And I think part of it is 
is that, um, you know, there might be some fear by the petroleum companies and, you know, oil, because they see people looking for solutions to move away from using a product that's inexpensive and it's readily available. And 80% of America's energy comes from, from um, non-renewable resources like that. So they don't want to lose their, their um you know, they don't want to lose the demand for that. So I can sure. understand the fear. And again, oil oil lobbyists are very powerful. So they're in the ears of people like Tom Cotton, <laughs> Senator Tom Cotton, you know, saying, uh, you know, it, it's just, um, it's about the money. I mean, if they thought that they could get lobbyist dollars for, from green energy companies, then they would be talking about how great clean energy is. Yeah. That's the reality of the situation. It's about who's going to give you money so you can run your next campaign and win. Yeah. Um, to make sure you, you hang on to that seat. And I think it's unfair, though, that that they are making fun of things like high speed rail. And I'm like, who doesn't want high speed rail? Mm-hmm. I, I would love to be able to have an option other than flying. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be thrilled to have high speed rail to go to Denver, Colorado for the weekend or, you know, whatever. I could just envision a lot of great opportunities. It would really help tourism or, you know, help people get from one place to the other for commuting and stuff. I just, uh, I don't understand the criticism. I think we need to look for other ways to, to, to travel and to get places. And also, um, you know, like solar energy, there's people in my community that have solar panels on their home. And I, I like it. I like seeing that kind of innovative thinking and it's not really new though. It's just a matter of getting it implemented on a wide scale. And I think most people would be happy to have that. There's just the criticism I just think are so unfair against the Democrats. I'm like, it's just an idea. Throw it out there and talk about it and see what works. Like, why can't we have these kinds of ideas and discussions taking place? But they want to shut it down before it even gets started. And I just, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> well, I, I actually think it's kind of a losing battle because uh, we, we're, I think we're, we're up against the wall on this environmental issues. And we talked about flooding a short time ago. And, and you know, we are seeing more hurricanes and we are seeing uh, a lot of yeah. the ill effects of, of climate change, including, um, you know, it, it is a national uh, threat as well. You know, many of your uh, naval bases and air force bases are just right about at sea level. So this is an issue that, you know, as soon as the True. sea level rises, we're going to have some problems here. So, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I, th- I think, uh, it, it is, it is a losing battle for the Republicans to do, but I think you're also right that, um, it is a corporate thing. As soon as there's money in, in, in green products, then, um, you know, they're going to obviously change their tone a little bit. And, and I see that happening already. You see windmills going up everywhere. Um, my son still lives out in California, so I fly out there. Well, not so much recently because of the pandemic, but, uh, every time I fly out there and I look down at the desert below, I see more and more solar panels going up. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a growing industry out there. So, um, I think we're making that shift whether or not, um, you know, people are agreeing with it. It's, it's going to happen. So I uh, think so too. So I'm going to suggest something a little bit off topic here. Um, because earlier in this podcast, we talked with Betsy Wright Hawkins, who's, who's been working in the U S Congress uh, for several decades. And we had an extensive conversation about budgets for the branches of government. Um, she said that, you know, over the past, few decades we've been we've seen expanding budgets for the executive branch and at the same time uh, budget cuts are taking place in the legislative branch 
And this is, in my opinion, it's a slow-moving disaster because the quality of work goes down. I mean, young people are motivated to work for Congress, and and over the years they get experience and get better at their jobs. But you know, as soon as they get married, they start having families. Their expenses go up. You know, they they can no longer live with their roommates. Yeah. They have to you know, get their own homes. And um, so they have to start thinking about the future. So what happens is they leave, right? At, at the peak of their performance, they leave and they have to go leave the public sector and work for, you know, uh, getting a higher payer job in the private sector. Um, so this may be a difficult question for you, but let's, I'll pop it to you anyways. Um, Missouri state representatives and senators are paid, right? They're paid about $36,000, maybe slightly less, uh, plus per diem. Um, Missouri is is uh, probably probably middle of the road. There's other there's other uh, states like California, which is in the six digit area. There's places like uh, New Hampshire, which pay like two hundred dollars for a two year session. And um, so, anyways, you're you're uh-huh. as a representative, you're paid about thirty six thousand dollars, and you're expected to be in the capital, Jefferson City, doing the people's business at least five months of the year. This year is an exception. There's actually more. Yeah. Um, my opinion right. and my observation is that. This salary shuts out a lot of people who may be good representatives, but simply cannot afford to live off that wage. You know, with some exceptions, perhaps. Um, so, would you in, would you support increasing the salary, or, or perhaps increasing the legislative budget, so that normal people can step up and be effective advocates for their districts? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I don't know that paying more is necessarily going to provide. A- a better quality of legislative or member of the legislature, because um, I think the biggest barrier for a lot of people is just the time commitment away from your family. It's very hard, especially for the a house seat, because you have to be willing to commit two years. Well, if you're already in a field and you're working, you don't want to walk away from a job where you have benefits and, you know, right. vacation time accrued and things like that. And, and also like, if you're a mom with children, like I have, you know, a young daughter, my son's in high school, he's kind of self-sufficient, but she needs a lot of attention, especially Mm -hmm. right now that we're doing virtual learning um, because of COVID. It's, it's a sacrifice to have to walk away from that. And so I think it's very difficult for somebody, for, for different people, different kinds of people to be able to think about doing this job because of the restrictions. One thing I noticed that the county council has been doing because they've been having their meetings on Zoom. That offers a lot more flexibility if you have children. Like I could easily sit and do a Zoom meeting and, you know, if from the comfort of my home and be able to keep an eye on my kids. Whereas if I'm in Jeff City, it's like you have to dedicate full time to that and you can't walk. You can, it's very hard to think about balancing back and forth. I think that's part of the issue is how long the term is. It's very long. And then they added two weeks and all that came out of it was two bills that they could have easily passed during the, the session if they had wanted sure. to. Um, so that was a waste of time and effort and money. But I think that, um, you know, it's the, it's the rigidness of the session and mm-hmm. it, it only appeal, it can, and most people that can do it are retired. Maybe they own a business ministers, you know, people that are religious that could do it in the week. And then on the weekend, they could go back to, you know, attending to the people in their church, Um, young people that don't have families. So then again, you don't have a really great representation of, of like suburban family type people that can advocate for suburban issues um, or people with children. And I think that that is a reflection of the kind of legislation that's being passed in our state. 
legislation that doesn't really care about education or that's trying to, or that doesn't care if charter schools come in because they don't even have kids. They don't understand what the impact would be right. or doesn't care about passing Medicaid expansion. Um, maybe because they are not been so sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're a young single guy, like maybe you don't, you don't have health issues and understand how important it is that you have insurance and pay for prescription medicine, right. those kinds of things. So I, do you think, you know, probably they could increase the salary somewhat, but it's on par with what they pay the start the starting teacher salary in the state. So, I mean, let's let's look at increasing that and also legislative assistance. Those people are there year in and year out. They work very hard. Their salary is very low. It's poverty wages. We need to we need to raise the bar of what we need to pay people that work for our state government agencies. And I think that the current legislate, the climate that we have, it just they just want to cut taxes so much that then their hands are tied and nobody can survive and they can't do anything. They don't have any funding for anything because they've cut the taxes for corporate taxes, what I'm talking about. Yeah. They cut the corporate taxes so much that then they have no money to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of what I was getting at because yeah, I realize that it's it's a huge sacrifice and and I applaud that you are, you know, you're you're essentially in the middle of, of raising your family and and you have one child in high school, another one younger. Um, that is a huge sacrifice. And um, but but setting that aside, I mean, there, I think there's a lot of people out there that would that would consider perhaps, you know, let's say the salary was doubled, they could do that. Uh, and be away from their family and, 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 uh, um, and you know, have uh, insurance and things like that that could be covered. Like a normal corporation would pay you, right? I mean, you're, uh, as a representative or a senator for, uh, on the state level, uh, this isn't an easy job, right? So uh, I, I think teaching is not an easy job either. I think people devalue that as well. And I agree, more people should be, you know, teachers should be paid a lot more for the quality of work that they do. Um, so I, I guess getting back to the legislature, that is that is an issue that that I think at least exists on the on the federal level, but I think it's it, it is even worse on the state level. A federal level, uh, they pay their legislators very well actually, uh, but the staff is what they're cutting back yeah. on, and that that is a huge issue. Yeah, because- that's not right. Those people do a lot of work. they put in a lot of a lot of work and a lot of time and the other thing that could be helpful i think in attracting more to run for office is maybe a longer term because two years you basically get into office you have to turn around and think about running again and running for office for me has been a full-time job wow. like i get up in the morning that's all i do until i go to bed at night because i've dedicated myself to running as hard as i can and so i think that um that's that's a daunting task and it's very expensive to run for office you, yeah. if you're not independently wealthy you have to raise money you have to show people that you have their best interests at heart for their for what they're looking for in a candidate and um you have to it's just it's, it's just a lot of work let me just put it that way i yeah. like doing it you have to have a certain personality for it but um yeah. it's just uh there's just a lot involved and i think that um it's just that that too is another issue it's not, i'm just i guess what i'm trying to say is it's not just about the salary there's a lot of other factors yeah involved. yeah i i agree and i think also you had a good point with the uh staff um the missouri i don't know what they pay for staff in missouri um at the state house in missouri but i suspect like you say it's it's uh poverty wages um as Congress people need more and higher quality research and, and they need to be able to look into issues, um, 
you don't want to have them depending upon the lobbyists giving them all the information, right? Because they're going to get a slanted view of things. So wow. you have to have a good and staff. And that's what's happening in the Missouri. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's happening in the Missouri legislature. Once term limits came into play, um, you know, some of those some of those um, members of the Missouri legislature that maybe were there years and years and years and could remember a time when, you know, this bill came through or this happened. You don't have that history there anymore. And mm -hmm. so people now defer to the lobbyists to fill them in. And that, yeah, like you said, it's not always the best outcome. And, and yeah. you have stuff. And it's hard on the lobbyists, too, apparently, because then they have to re-educate everyone. But that that's their yeah. problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's their problem. So uh, we're going to wrap this up soon. Do you have any uh, last words you'd like to say? Um, oh, also a call to action. How can people get involved in your campaign or get involved and help you out in any way or just in general get involved in politics? Yeah, if, if you have any questions, if you're thinking about running in the future and you'd like to reach out to me, you can go to erica496.com. It's E-R-I-C-A-F-O-R-9-6.com. And that's my basic website, but you can email me or if you want to make a donation, you can make a donation through there. I have a Facebook page too, Erica Hoffman for the 96. It just has some of the posts and some of the things that I'm thinking, you know, as a, as a mom who's home trying to educate my kids during COVID, the COVID crisis, you know, I have a little bit different perspective than maybe some of the other some other individuals running for office. And I think it's it's a voice that needs to be heard at the state level. And I'm just trying to get it out there as much as possible. Wonderful. So again, that's Erica 496. So that's E-R-I-C-A-F-O-R and the number is 96.com. Right. Yep. Okay, well, we've been talking with Erica Hoffman, the Democratic candidate currently running to represent Missouri's 96th district in the Missouri House of Representatives. Erica, thank you so much for stopping by this evening, and good luck with your campaign, and it was a pleasure having you as our guest on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week will bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in a future podcast, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. All one word, The Alliance Party. All content for this podcast is copyright The Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.